You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were, were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, let's pray together. Also, just a little announcement. Our normal hands-free microphone broke right as we were beginning this morning. So, I don't know. I'm going to try to work this thing. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Let's, let's pray together uh, before God's word. So Lord, we just slow our minds and our souls down right now. And we recognize our need for you to speak into our lives. God, would you do what I can't do in this moment? Take these words and move them from information in our minds to something that really hits us in the depths of our soul. God, we want to present to you and to the city, the region that you've placed us in, an authentic expression of what it looks like to be a disciple of the risen Christ. We don't wanna just attend an event. We don't wanna just check the box of church. God, we say, here's our life. It's our joy to honor you. Now, would you take these lives of ours and, and show this watching world around us what happens when a community of people genuinely follow Jesus? So God, would you help me uh, to provoke us by your word to wanna follow you more closely this morning? Help me, I pray, spirit of the living God in Jesus. I, I'm, amen, amen. So uh, cards on the table, I, I'm a millennial. That's what generation I'm in. Many of you are too. If we were to ask the question, what do millennials value more than anything else? What would be the response? Y'all can just shout it out if you think you have it. <laughs> no, he's the, no, what, what, what's like, that is it. 
Millennials, people in my generation, love what is real, what's authentic, uh, what's uh, raw. And there's different reasons for this. Some of it is philosophical. So we are sort of swimming in post-modernity. And uh, this uh, philosophical idea basically rejects anything from the past that would come into our lives and make us conform to something or anything that we are asked to do that doesn't feel like it's from the heart or authentic, we're, we're allergic to that. And so some of it's philosophical. That's why we value what's authentic. Uh, for other reasons, I think it's just because of the economy that we've lived in. So a, a lot of companies seeking to maximize profit and then bring the quality of things down. We as kind of this current generation kind of look back on that and want things that are real and genuine. So as our parents, maybe we're fine drinking Folgers coffee. Uh, we need fair trade, organic, Yemenis coffee uh, to survive. Where, where our parents just went to JCPenney or Kmart and got whatever brand of jean was available there, we need authentic, raw, selvage denim. Uh, some of you know what I mean uh, by that. Whereas maybe our parents' generation, we're fine with whatever that mystery meat was you ate in the cafeteria uh, growing up, you just prayed and asked for God's mercy before you ate it. Uh, we want to know the names, the hobbies, the personality types of the animals that we eat. We want, we want to know the, the, the source that it came from. We, we, we want things that are real and authentic and genuine. And we have an allergic reaction almost to anything that feels fake or forced or not truly genuine. So this morning, what I want to consider with you is authentic discipleship. What's a real disciple of Jesus look like? What's it look like when someone is genuinely in our own day and age giving their life to follow Jesus? We, we began this sort of mini-series that we're in. Next week, we're going to jump into the book of uh, Nehemiah, but we're in this just few weeks considering our mission as a church. We talked about, uh, we, we, we looked at how Jesus is building his church, and that happened. To summarize that, what we mean is Jesus is making more disciples, and he wants to use us to make that happen. And we saw last week, what do you need to be a disciple of Jesus? The answer is absolutely nothing. You come to him empty-handed like Peter did, simply acknowledging that you're sinful you can't do it on your own, asking for mercy, and that is all you need. In fact, that's what you must have to be a disciple of Jesus. So then this morning, what I want to consider is, how can you tell? How can you tell if someone's genuinely given their lives to him, genuinely become a disciple of his? And it's an important discussion for, for a couple of reasons we, we need to talk about what authentic discipleship looks like, number one, because Jesus himself set the expectation. There will be imposters. He, Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, not everyone who just says my name or claims to follow me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. Paul says later to the church that they actually ought to examine themselves, 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourself. Test whether you're not you're in the faith because once again, there are in fact going to be inauthentic expressions of discipleship. So it's important in that regard. And I think it's also important in this regard. Man, like this world does not need just another church building another group of people who attend on Sunday, they need a living, genuinely 
is following the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is a true disciple look like? How can you tell? What are the signs or the marks of a true disciple? We're looking again this morning at this early example, the first disciples. We're gonna look at uh, it almost as a, ta- as a uh, case study and consider, hey, what were the factors that were present in their lives that we might emulate in our own day and age? And let me just say it by way of caveat, the areas we look at for genuine discipleship they will never be found in our lives perfectly. But they will to some degree be found in our lives. We'll never perfectly emulate the things that we see these early disciples doing. But nonetheless, when someone has truly encountered Jesus in a saving way, these areas will be evidenced to some measure in their life. So what are they? How can you tell someone's become a disciple of Jesus? We're gonna uh, look at the kind of second portion of this passage. Last week, we spent the majority of our time in the first half. We're gonna look at the second portion this week and let's just get caught up with what's happened so far, okay? So Jesus is teaching. Peter's off to the side washing his nets. Jesus shifts his attention from the crowd to Peter and this miracle happens where fish are uh, flying into the nets of these fishermen. Uh, They're pulling them into the boats. The boats are sinking and it's apparent a miracle from heaven has just happened. And so Peter who began sort of disinterested in Jesus, sort of talking back to Jesus is now on his knees, prostrate before Jesus, recognizing something divine has just happened. And as he looks at the divine and as he looks at his own life, all that he can say in that moment is, Jesus, depart from me, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Failing to realize that is precisely the kind of person that Jesus came for. The the thing that you need to be a disciple of Jesus is a recognition of your sinfulness, your need from him. And it's at that moment when he has that saving encounter with Jesus that he begins his journey as an authentic disciple. How can we tell three things that happen in this story? The first one, they left Peter and the other early disciples. They left everything. They left everything. Would you look back with me in verse 11? And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Leaving of things, a forsaking of things that takes place as they begin this journey. And their leaving of things is not like me with my severe ADHD that I'll be doing something and something more captivating will come along and I'll just, I'll come back to that later and I'll follow. It's not like they're saying, just leave the nets and the boats. We'll deal with that later. Let's see what Jesus is up to for the rest of the day. That was pretty crazy what happened with the fish. What else might he have up his sleeve? That's not what they're saying when it says they left everything. Here's here's what's happening in that moment. These first disciples are taking the most valuable thing that they have in their life. They're turning their back on it, never to pick it up again. They're leaving the most valuable thing that they have. Recognize that in those days, being a fisherman was a, a lucrative career. It wasn't the most kind of esteemed thing you could do in that society, but it, it was certainly a, a, a good career. And so it's apparent from the story that uh, he seems to even have a bit of an operation going on. So there's multiple boats. There's a team of people who are fishing together. Uh, there, there's multiple nets. This is, a, this is a, a bit of a business enterprise that Peter has in this moment. And when, when you read some of the other accounts, it not only says that they left their nets, they also left their father. 
Most likely what that's referring to is they, they are leaving behind the family business. And in those days, whatever your father did, that's what you did. But they're looking at the esteem of their family, their heritage, sort of the honor and the recognition of uh, doing what their parents did. And they, they are turning and, and they are leaving all of that. They, they are leaving what is perhaps the most precious thing that they have behind. And what I want you to observe in their leaving of it is how naturally and how easy it is in this moment for them to do it. It just says they have this astonished moment considering what Jesus has just done. And it's almost second nature that they then just leave everything and follow him. It's not like in that moment, Peter busts out a list, uh, you know, pen and pad. Okay, let's pro and con this thing. If I, you know, follow Jesus, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna have to leave my hometown. But on the other hand, I'll probably gain some popularity. I'll get invited to some ragers with some tax collectors. Uh, I'll get the opportunity to uh, own some Pharisees publicly in front of all my friends and kind of, you know, get the joy of doing that. Which one should I do? There's not a pro and con list. It's obvious, it's apparent. Why? Because when you, See Jesus the way that these early disciples saw Jesus. It brings you to a place where you're willing to say, there is nothing in my life that I will not let go of if it means that I gain more of him. In fact, as Paul says later, everything in my life that I once deemed valuable, significant, important, everything. I now count it as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's, it's not a struggle when you're just looking at the valuable things, sure, but when you compare it to the surpassing worth of Jesus, it's, it's easy. It's, it's obvious. I want you to see a two-sentence story that Jesus tells that illustrates this perfectly. Would you turn over with me? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. A two-sentence story, Matthew 13. I forgot my water again. That's two weeks in a row. Thank you very much. Matthew 13, go ahead and turn over there. Let's read verse 44. Which a man found and covered up. Then, listen to this, in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. So this is what this story recognizes. Humans are treasure hunters. We are all looking for something of worth, treasure, of value. We spend our lives chasing down treasure. And this guy found the treasure that all of us are looking for, the treasure of the kingdom of God. He finds it. And notice what he does not do after that. It doesn't say he took the treasure and added it to all the other things that he had in his life. Uh, what he does is he, he leaves and he goes home and he, he throws a big yard sale. And he's not sort of, you know, with his shoulders hanging down, grieved of all the things he has to sell, all of these treasured possessions that he has to sell so that he can go behind the field. No, he has a big fat smile on his face while his neighbors come and purchase all of the things that he once treasured that he now counts as junk because he's found uh, the, the thing of greatest price, uh, the treasure of the kingdom of God. So with joy, he says, let it all go. Get rid of all of it because of the surpassing worth of what I've found in the kingdom. 
That's what we see these first disciples doing. They are so enamored, so astonished, so amazed that Jesus would invite people like them to be his disciples, that everything they once held dear is now held open-handedly. Whatever you want, whatever you want, it's on the altar. And so can we just consider for a moment, just your own life, your own journey of discipleship. What have you put on the altar as you began giving your life over to this journey of discipleship? Maybe more a present day question. Man, what might need to go on the altar today in your life for the, in light of the surpassing worth of gaining more of Christ in your life? What might need to go on the altar? I've got a few categories in my mind that I wanna go over with you this morning. I think a few things on my heart that I hope you'll consider for yourself. The first and most obvious one that you should probably give some consideration to is just this category of wealth, this category of money. That's what's happening here. Peter is turning his back on his wealth so that he could follow Jesus. This was not a sound financial move according to worldly standards then or now. He is turning his back on financial gain so that he might have more of Christ. I think this can happen a couple ways in our lives. When we begin following Jesus, what you're gonna see happening is that your life is just, you're just gonna be more generous, generally speaking. Money that naturally as human beings, we just hold onto tightly. We now don't take quite as seriously. And we're actually excited when there's an opportunity degree of generosity that wasn't there before. That's one way that it can show up. Here's another one that I have on my heart for our church, maybe more specifically. What's happening here with these disciples, is not just that they're being more generous, but they are turning aside from the prospect of financial gain uh, when compared to their uh, journey as disciples. So there are a lot of ambitious people in our church body. I love it. There are a lot of you that work very hard in your career. There's some of you that have jobs and then side hustles going on. And man, that's great and that's phenomenal. And that may very well be part of your journey of following Jesus. But these early disciples were able to recognize, hey, if anything about this career of mine gets in the way of following Christ, it's on the altar. It's on the altar, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. It's on the altar because of the surpassing worth of Christ. I don't know what that could look like in your life. I just wanna lay that out before you. Is there anything pertaining to your vocation or the things that you, the irons that you have in the fire that might be getting away of your growth as a disciple, uh, your involvement in discipleship group, your commitment on Sunday, something to consider. Here's just another one I'll, I'll hit on briefly. Another thing that we need to give a special, I think, attention to in our day is, is the prospect of giving up comforts or freedoms uh, for the sake of following Jesus. Uh, this was not, Peter, uh, it's so funny. From the moment he became a disciple of Jesus, his life got more and more uncomfortable. All kinds of different situations he got himself into from following Jesus, but it was worth it to him. He, here's what, what Peter is essentially doing in this moment as he begins following Christ. He pulls out a blank calendar and he says, here you go, Lord, you fill it in. You structure my life, you structure my days, however you want me to spend my days, the kind of, 
stay withdrawn a little bit from discipleship or opportunities within the church or things that you could be doing kind of in our midst because you're being faithful in another area with your family, with your kids, with your marriage. Maybe you're staying withdrawn because of that. There could be others of you in this room. You stay withdrawn because it would mean giving up some comforts, some freedom, some autonomy over your schedule. Following Jesus says, Lord, my schedule, my comforts, my autonomy, it's yours. And then let's just hit one more category. This is the biggest one in our day and age. Money, comfort, what about our sexuality? Okay. This is the one area I would imagine, especially as modern people that we'd say, this is sort of my area. This is very personal. Uh, Jesus could speak to any other area of my life, but this one I'm holding on to. This one uh, is too personal. The Bible's too outdated. And so, I'm gonna define my beliefs about sexuality and perhaps even my behavior with sexuality off of what's perhaps more common or feels good to me. I can remember early as I began considering following Jesus and the one thing that stuck with me was you can't possibly be saying that sexual activity is to be reserved in the context of a marriage relationship to a man and a woman. Given how much I'd been discipled by our culture, you cannot be serious that that's the case. And this this is what I wanted in that moment. I wanted Jesus to conform his definition of sexuality to my views and preferences, rather than me conforming my views and preferences of sexuality to his revealed will and his word. There are many, I think, in our culture that, w- that would wanna do the same thing. But when we begin following Jesus, we say, there's no area off limits. There's nothing that I will not surrender over to you. You now define my beliefs and my behavior, even in this deeply personal area of my life. And we maybe need to hear this with like big cultural realities in the middle of Pride Month with our understanding of how the Bible defines sexuality. May we may hear this in the very small areas of our life with where we're just drawn to perhaps lustful images or uh, areas where you know you shouldn't be going. We say when we begin following Jesus is you to conform to me. So what perhaps might need to go on the altar this morning, man, it begins with them being enamored with Jesus saying, there is nothing that I will not give up if it means following you. There's nothing in my life off limits. Anything can go on the altar. That's the first evidence that we've become a disciple of Jesus, man. We are willing to give up anything. Number two, how can we we tell that we're experiencing genuine discipleship? Well, the second half of this verse, they left everything so that they could follow him. Verse 11, one more time. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This is an enormously significant statement. Again, they're not just seeing what Jesus is up to the rest of the day. When it says that they followed him, they're committing themselves in that moment to a lifelong journey of learning from and emulating Jesus in every area of their life. There was this saying back then that, Uh, went along with people who would follow a popular rabbi or teacher. Uh, It it went like this. Maybe you've heard it before. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What were they saying in that moment? Well, in those days, people would rise to be these significant Bible teachers and uh, they were called rabbis and they would have a group of disciples that would follow them. 
And, uh, you know, these disciples didn't learn from them by reading their books or watching their webinars. These disciples would devote every waking moment of them. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, you are following so closely that the dust that's being kicked up from the rabbi in front of you is now on you because that's how devoted and committed you are to following Jesus. This is what these early disciples are doing. Lord, my whole life, I want it to look like you. I am going to devote my waking energy to following your teaching and submitting my life to your example. Let me tell you our longing as a church, our longing as a church is to make more disciples of Jesus. Where you come to our gatherings, you come to join this body saying, not just, hey, this is a church I can attend on Sundays, but you recognize I am jumping in headfirst into a, what we see of submitting more of my life to him. And what we see happening in this kind of early encounter are sort of three ingredients, if you will, that were necessary in order for the uh, transforming process of discipleship to happen. What do you need for someone to grow as a disciple? Three things. Number one, you need God's word. Number two, God's people. And number three, God's presence. God's word, God's people, God's presence. You put those things together in your life in an intentional way and you will be changed forever. I love how out of the gate, so first of all, Jesus is the incarnate word. He is the word of God made flesh dwelling among us who these disciples are now following. But notice they didn't do it alone. Even from the outset, this thing is happening in the context of community. Yes, there's Peter and he gets the majority of the attention in this story, but there's also James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So you see his people and of course the presence of of God, Jesus himself dwelling among them. God's word, God's people, God's presence. Here's how that function functions in our own day and age. We have God's word recorded for us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We have God's people, where as a church, what we try to do is get you in a group of three, four, five other people where you are saying together, we wanna grow. We don't wanna stay where we're at. We wanna continue to be transformed so that we uh, emulate more and more of Christ's character. And then finally, we don't have Jesus's presence, but that's okay. He actually said that's to our advantage. When he was with his disciples, he says, it's to, my, it's to your advantage that I'm leaving because I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna send you the helper, the advocate, the spirit of God who now dwells in our midst as we pursue Jesus together. And so what we want as a church, as we are on this discipleship journey is to get together with a few other people who have the same heart, the same mind, get God's word open and get our souls open to the presence of the living God that we might back trans transformation together. But that's our approach. That's our aim in making disciples as a church. And so just a few categories here for us as a church. Number one, if you're a member at New City, are you in a discipleship group? If you're not, let me just ask you this morning to answer for yourself, why not? These are the ingredients, God's word, God's people, God's presence. These groups are an opportunity to facilitate those things together. Why aren't you in a discipleship group? Maybe you're here yet and you're not a member. To this point, we've reserved our discipleship groups for membership, not so that it's like an exclusive benefit you get like a Costco, like, you know, platinum membership. That's not why. It's not like an added benefit. What we recognize is that when Jesus set up the church, he set it up as the the primary institution where discipleship takes place. And so we wanna see people committed to the church so that they can say, hey, with these people, I wanna grow as a disciple. And then that brings you into a group. So for some of you, maybe you need to pray and consider membership. If not at this church, some church where you can say, these are my people that I'm with to follow Jesus together. 
And then finally, there may be some of you that are saying, I don't even know about church membership personally. I feel like I'm at the very beginning of what it looks like to follow Jesus. What we're hoping to have are even groups, smaller groups that can meet you right where you're at. Maybe you're not ready to be a member. Maybe you are trying to figure this out for yourself or uh, the, the, the very beginnings of your journey of following Jesus. We would love to get you plugged in to one of those. So recap so far, authentic signs, authentic descriptions of discipleship, a willingness to leave anything and everything for the sake of Christ. Number two, genuinely desiring to follow him, being so captivated by him that you actually want to exemplify the character of Jesus in your life. So number two is to follow him. And then the final one we'll consider this morning is that you long for other people to do the same thing. You give up anything to follow him, you follow him yourself and you want more than anything else more people to follow him as you are. Let's read this description of what is gonna be involved in Peter's discipleship from the very outset. So it says in verse 10, uh, the, describing the names of the people who are there. And uh, then in the second half of verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. The word there, of course, pertains to men and and women. Uh, But he says to Peter, from now on, you are going to be fishing for catching people. Uh, Notice how central to our following of Jesus is this call to help other people do the same thing. So priority number one in discipleship, follow Jesus. Priority number two, seek for other people to engage in the same thing that you are. At the very outset, notice he doesn't just say to Peter, hey, you're gonna follow me and I'm gonna make you a great leader or uh, I'm gonna make you a kids volunteer or I'm gonna make you a Bible study leader, even though those things are important and even contribute to the process of discipleship. He says, one of the main things that you're gonna be giving yourself to is inviting other people to follow Jesus. And he uses this analogy that's a little bit hard for us. You're going to be catching people. That sounds a little bit odd because the, the analogy of fishing is like, you know, uh, taking people against their will maybe or forcing or coercing it. What, what's going on with this analogy of, of fishing or catching people? Well, uh, I think there's three ways that our mission as a church to make more disciples is analogous to fishing, okay? Number one, in fishing, right? Things that are completely outside of your normal environment or habitat, Right? When you go fishing, you're going down into the depths of water, into that dark, cold place, a completely different environment than what you're used to. That communicates we are never as a church supposed to just be around our kind of home base, just around our Christian environment. We're supposed to be going outside of our environment. And then number two, we are compelling people to follow Jesus in the same way that, if, that, that someone who's fishing is seen uh, seeking to there to be a transformation from where these fish are to where they ultimately end up. We're to go outside of our normal environment and invite, draw uh, this way. We need a miracle in order for it to happen. We need a miracle for it to happen. Not just because you don't know how to catch fish, but in the same position that Peter was in. There's this Puritan, Thomas Boston. He wrote this book called The Art of Man Fishing. And he put it this way. He made himself as to success. That is, he makes them catch men to himself by the power of his Holy Spirit, accompanying them as they preach. He it is that brings them into the net which we spread. And if he be not with them to drive the fish into the net, 
They may toil all the night and day two and catch nothing. Remember Peter, he, he was unable to do it on his own until this miracle happened where these fish were, were flocking to the boat in, in hordes together. In the same way, in this call to see people begin following Jesus, a miracle, a miracle from heaven has to happen. So this is our mission to get outside of our environment, to invite, to draw, to uh, proclaim that people might join us in the same journey that we're on. And we do it all under the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's just take a moment here as we're gonna wrap up in, in just a couple minutes and just go ahead and name, state a desire that I and the other elders and staff would long for you to have as a member of this church. Let me just state and name this desire. Man, if our mission is to make not just disciples, not just grow personally as disciples, but to make more disciples, here's what I long to see. Man, I long to see our church grow. Not just so we get more butts and seats or you know, a bigger budget or anything like that. People crossed over from death to life to see people lost in sin, to see people who are hopeless and helpless to do anything about their lives uh, through the ministry of this very church under the power of God's hand, uh, join in the same journey that we're in. Man, I wanna see more disciples made through New City Fellowship. We're gonna be talking in more specificity about some, some goals that we're gonna set as a church in order for that to happen at our member meeting. I just wanna invite you to have that same desire, that same longing to say, man, I love our church. I love our members. I love the people who are here, but God, would you add to us? As we read about in the book of Acts, the Lord adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. I wanna be a part of that journey. I hope that you do too. Let me just leave us with three things that I think we need to give ourselves to in order for that to happen. Just three simple steps of application uh, that I think will uh, uh, allow us to experience this third step of encouraging, inviting other people to do the same. Number one, we need intercession. We need to pray. We've been talking about it a lot. We're gonna be doing it this summer. Right now, what we're looking for is a space where we can meet, where we can gather as a whole church community in the middle of the week, just to pray and fast during the summer. If we can't make that happen, it may be in God's providence. He would rather us gather in small gatherings all throughout the region in different homes or different times throughout the week so that more people can attend. We need to pray this summer uh, for that miracle that happened with Peter to happen in our midst. Number two, I wanna encourage us to the simple act of invitation. We are fishers of men, we people to church. And I remember very early on in our days, this was something we really caught and walked in uh, very passionately. We even went, I'm not even suggesting this, but before our first service, man, we went door to door through Old Town and some of the surrounding neighborhoods. And we just invited people to church. And by golly, some people actually came from those invitations. I'm personally just challenged with that. Why don't we more regularly just simply invite people to church? I mean, for some of us, because we're millennials, we feel like, well, it has to be authentic and genuine. And if I just invite someone without having them over for dinner 50 times beforehand, it'll feel forced and manipulated. Man, like you, you can do it in a genuine way. There's conversations that I have with people throughout the city just in passing. Hey, bye. And I, I'm okay after that. Like I, I survived after the, those encounters. Why, why don't we just take this simple act? If our mission is to make more disciples. What about just the simple act of saying, hey, I go to a church on Sunday morning, Baldwin Elementary School, 1030. Uh, would love to see you there. Would, would love to see you there. 
Maybe it's because we fear rejection. Maybe it's because we fear the discomfort of what will happen if we actually invite someone. But once again, remember, we lay all that on the altar when we begin following Jesus. We lay it on the, all on the altar. We need to pray and intercede. We need to invite. And then it's just simple conversation, man. Like we need spiritual leaders in our city that have the courage to actually bring up the big questions in life in our conversations with people. Maybe they're not gonna show up at church, but at least you can have a conversation about the big question, the meaning of life, why you became a Christian, why you decided to follow Jesus. People who have the courage to, to step into a relationship and actually bring up spiritual realities. We need people in our midst that are willing to go there, willing to take that step, even though it feels uncomfortable. And I think that's just some simple steps we can take as a church to engage in this mission of making more disciples. We need to intercede, invite, and converse with people about the claims of Christ. We, we began this sort of mini series, if you wanna call it that, just sort of like laying out a couple options for us as a church, right? Like there's, there's kind of two directions a church can, grow, can go. You can be a stagnant church that just sort of exists and goes through the motions. And we talked about what that looks like. It looks like a gross pond in your backyard that has weird things growing in it and that nobody wants to be a part of. Or a church that's moving, that's engaged in the mission that's been entrusted to us is this picture of a flowing stream through a Shenandoah Valley that's, that's shining, that's compelling, that's inviting. I don't wanna be a part of a church that's just existing. I don't wanna be a part of a church that just goes through the motion and makes Sunday happen, man. I wanna be on the move. I wanna be a part of this incredible task that Jesus has entrusted us with of making continuously in this mission that we've been called to. We need to go back to where the disciples were this morning that caused all of it to happen in the first place, okay? Let me read verse nine uh, one more time. For he and all who were with them were astonished, were astonished. Do you stand astonished at the person of Jesus this morning? That's where the motivation to give up anything and to follow him and to draw other people to do the same, that's where it comes from in the first place. Are you astonished that the God of the universe took on a human body just like yours, filled with weakness and pain? Are you astonished that the God of the universe, as he lived in that, that perfect body, that human body, lived a sinless life, a perfect life? And are you astonished this morning that he took that perfect life to a form of Roman torture to give up his life not just for people in general. Are you astonished that the son of God gave up his life for you, for you? And that he died, his heart stopped beating. He was dead in a tomb. And then on Sunday morning, he rose up from the grave so that whoever, anyone who will fall on their knees like Peter did, confessing their sinfulness and their need of him might be completely redeemed and set free. Are you astonished? Are you astonished that what's waiting for you this morning, the moment you cross from this life is an eternity of bliss and joy because God's son was willing to give his life for you. 
That's where discipleship begins, standing astonishment, this meal that symbolizes all these realities. If you believe these realities, come forward and take them and then go back to your seat and stand astonished at this God we serve. If you're here this morning and you don't believe the realities I just proclaimed, let me invite you to stay in your seat and to take hold for yourself what God has done through his son for you. Let's pray together now and just invite God, even in this moment of worship, to, to reawaken, to reastonish us in our wonder at him. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, those early disciples gave up everything to follow you. And even in that moment, they, they weren't even able yet to see all that you would do for them. Here we stand on the other side of the resurrection, looking back saying, God, how can it be? How can it be that you would do all of that for me? Lord, true discipleship doesn't begin with us just deciding, okay, this week I'm really gonna be a better disciple. I'm gonna you know, really get rid of some things and follow Jesus. That's not where it begins. Man, it begins with us standing amazed, standing astonished, at who you are and what you've done. So God, we wanna be real. So I pray that in this moment, you'll make it real. The lyrics we sing, the bread, the cup that we take, the worship we engage in, God, would you now usher us in to the reality of your presence so that we could go out into this world and give an authentic expression of lives who have been transformed by you. So here we are, Lord, give us the real thing in this moment so that this watching world can get a taste of the real thing as we devote our lives to you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.